0: Let's take our Bibles. Let's head over to Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. We're going to jump all over this evening, but typically where we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. If you're with us, what we've been doing is we're doing a series on the book of Acts. And what I've opted to do with that in mind is study chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph in the morning. And if there are some thoughts that are seen or some topics that are displayed in the the Acts, answer some of the questions that are related and do some supplementary study. So what we did already is we talked about that idea, there's healings in the first couple chapters of Acts. What about biblical healings? Does God still heal? And we look at those passages, yes God heals, and how God heals, and then what about faith healers? And what the topic we're dealing with this evening is the second part of one we looked at last week, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. It, it comes up in the book of Acts, but somebody asked a question I thought was very valid that I wanted to start off with. Somebody asked the question, well, the Bible uses a number of different descriptive terms or illustrations, parallels, whatever you would like to use, to describe the Holy Spirit and how he works. And why does God do that? Why, why does he sometimes use picturesque speakers' symbols? One of the most common symbols that are portrayed when we're portraying the Holy Spirit is one animal. The dove. Okay. And so the dove is used to picture the Holy Spirit in that regards. How come? Where did it show up? In relationship to the Holy Spirit. Do you remember? Any Bible? Okay. At the baptism of Jesus. That he talks about in the account, it talks about the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. And John, as he's writing, he makes it clear that we even saw whatever that was, this dove-like descent that we saw something physically descend. And so the question I have for you is this, okay, as we just do some discussion in our Bible study, we know that this is a descent from heaven showing God's favor. If that was clear. All the people understood. This is God favoring this individual Jesus by, by this Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Why use a dove as a comparison? One of the possibilities here is because physically the Spirit descended like a dove I don't mean to be irreverent. You know, the way it flew down, that's a possibility. Is there any other possibility? Is there any characteristics or descriptive ideas of a dove that would apply to the Holy Spirit? Peace? Okay. Okay. Even in Scripture, in Scripture he uses this, the dove is a symbol of innocency and purity. Do you remember how Jesus said, I send you forth as sheep among Wolves was the animal, be wise as what other animal? Snakes, as serpents. Be wise as serpents. And then as innocent as doves. Okay, so the dove has the aspect of, you know, the picture, even in the ancient world, it has that picture of peace and, and basically innocency and purity. So you can understand, but that doesn't mean the dove is part, or the Holy Spirit is part of creation. He is above creation. He's the Spirit of God. He's the Triune God. But there was another term that is also used. Remember when the Holy Spirit is described as wind or breath? Yeah, I can't hear. At Pentecost, the wind is described in association when the when at the uh, at the the baptism of the Spirit in Acts chapter two, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Any other time? Okay, creation, that the Spirit of God moved above. Yes. There was the wind, the fire, the earthquake. Do you remember any other New Testament references? One by Jesus at night? With a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, where he talks about the Spirit moving as like a wind. And the idea here is that you have a comparison. If the Holy Spirit is compared to or associated with wind, what characteristics of wind are similar to the Holy Spirit? Or why would he use that? Can't see it, but, you, but it's, it's there. Is wind powerful? Okay. What is a, a, on a hot day, what does a breeze do for you? Okay. Okay, so you can see where some of that, where people would say, okay, these are descriptive terms. They make perfect sense that we're using these things. And obviously, wind or breath is the same thing. It brings life, so does the Spirit of God. There's another one that, again, we remind you it's not part of creation, but there's another one. There's a time where Jesus uses the phrase, and it comes out in English, that he describes the Spirit upon you as like clothing. Do do you remember this passage? He's telling them at the end of Luke, he's saying, you wait in Jerusalem until you be clothed with the power from on high. And the idea is, you know, you're going to get this power. And he's referring to what event? He's telling them right, as, right when Jesus ascends, he's telling them basically the same thing as he did in Acts chapter 1. You wait, you tarry into the promise of the Spirit. But Luke records it with the idea of being clothed with power on high. Why would, we, why would Jesus use the idea of the Spirit clothing us? What benefit, benefits is there in being clothed? Okay, it covers us. For what benefits? Okay, okay. There's the idea of protection with our clothing, Yeah, Would we all, would we all agree there's, there's the idea of protection, warmth? Okay. Is there also the idea of helping us testimony-wise? Okay, modesty-wise? And so the covering of the Spirit, the protection of the Spirit, the warmth, the, you know, the help that it gives, all those things are, are all those phrases are, good. They're, they're found in the Bible. But the one that again is found most often is this idea of being filled with the Spirit. We talked about it last week that shows up in the Old Testament. It shows up quite a few times in the Old Testament. We gave you a number of those references. It talks about certain people. These were some of them that were told uh, were said to be filled with the Spirit of God. There were more. We looked at a number of these last week just briefly but quickly we stated them. And I wanted to just highlight as we go through them that some of these guys, they didn't even read that the Spirit was on them and then left them again. Um, they weren't necessarily the most spiritual of characters, but the Spirit of God filled them. I'm thinking of two in particular. You're looking at this list. Two of them stand out as not the most godly people, but they were filled. Samson would be one. Saul would be another one. And so you have that aspect, and we looked at it. And we made some comments about this filling of the Spirit that shows up in all those cases that we gave you in the Old Testament, and I think that was pretty much all of them. And then we pointed out last week that there are a number of times that it shows up in the book of Acts. In fact, I've given you now all the different times that it shows up in the book of Acts that somebody is filled with the Spirit or full of the Spirit, and then there's you know, a follow-up on what happens. So we read about it in the book of Acts on several different occasions that people were filled with the Spirit. And so what we wanted to do is say, okay, we need to understand that, so let's go to the epistles. And let's find out in the epistles, which explain and expound upon the book of Acts, what do they say about the filling of the Spirit? There is one specific verse in Ephesians chapter 5 that you should have memorized, or you probably already have, that says, be not drunk with wine, where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And we looked at this last week, just very quickly, we're going to dissect it more tonight, but it's written to the church age believers, which is us. This epistle makes it clear that God commands that we be filled with the Spirit. How many of us are supposed to be filled with the Spirit? All of us, because it says in the passage, but you all to be filled. And uh, so in this text, it's talking about this practice of being filled with the Spirit is to be regularly, repeatedly done in your life. He never says how often. He doesn't say weekly, monthly, hourly, but but we'll see by the end of our study how frequently we need this, this filling of the Spirit that occurs. And so we looked at some of the blessings that come out of the filling of the Spirit by jumping through the book of Acts. Also, going into the epistles where it talks about the Spirit and what He can do in your life. And we had 20 different benefits that we gave you last week about having that close walk with the Spirit. Tonight, I want to go to another direction and just say, okay, we're still in that same mindset. We need to understand the filling of the Spirit and then apply it to our lives. And so I want to just give you definitive phrases, descriptive phrases, and understanding of what is the filling of the Spirit. Let's pick up where we were last week. The filling of the Spirit in the New Testament is different than that which was happening in the Old Testament. If that's the case, you can't run to the Old Testament, therefore, and say what happened to them or what were the results is the same purpose or results today. That, that, that's not the case. Can't do that because there was a difference. In the Old Testament, many different people and we gave you a list of them, whether it be individuals or groups of people, they experienced the filling of the Spirit, but not all the Jews had this opportunity. We knew that, we said this from last week, where the Joshua comes and said, Moses, Eldad and Medad, they're still prophesying. And he says, I wish all of the people of Israel had the Spirit to prophesy. And so they didn't all have it. The filling of the Spirit was very selective. It only came upon a certain few. It wasn't a universal ministry of the Spirit that was available to all within the congregation congregation. We also made uh, this observation which is different from the New Testament because we're all to be filled. We said that those in the Old Testament, one of the differences, they were empowered to do a special job Samson to be powerful, to defeat the Philistines. Saul to initiate the kingdom of of God. The prophets to help them to fight against the enemies. Whatever it may be, building, warring, leading, prophesying, there was a special task given to that person who was uh, then filled with the spirit that they were to carry out this task. And so we look in the New Testament, there is no specific task mentioned for us to fulfill other than living a godly life day in and day out. So there's a difference then as opposed to saying, well, I'm going to fill you with the Spirit so that you can be a salesperson at such and such a place. I'm going to fill you with the Spirit so you can work for such and such a car dealership. Or I'm going to fill you with the Spirit so that you can be a better banker. Um, the filling of the Spirit is basically broad to all of us and it's not given for a specific task that was oriented toward, like it was in the nation of Israel. The filling was not based upon personal character or spiritual character. You've already pointed out the two. Samson and Saul were not godly people and yet they were filled because they were given a special task. Today the filling of the Spirit both before you get it and after you get it has to do with the spiritual character. And so there's a difference in that regard. None of those in the Old Testament who were filled ever sought after it. The closest we have in the Old Testament of somebody seeking after that walk with the Spirit is David saying, Remove not thy spirit from me. That's the closest we have in the Old Testament. No command to be filled with the Spirit, no encouragement to do it. But in the New Testament, we are encouraged, we are commanded to pursue this filling of the Spirit. So it wasn't the same thing in the Old Testament. And even though the terms are used interchangeably, I want you to notice the second fact from Scripture. When we talk about the filling of the Spirit, it's not the same thing in the New Testament as the baptism of the Spirit. We talked about this like six weeks ago on a Sunday morning when we were talking about the uh, coming of the Spirit in the book of Acts. But let me just rehearse a couple things again, just to make sure we're all on the same page. And we understand this because as we repeat, it gets down further into our spirit and we understand Um, When I was growing up, my dad was selling snowmobiles, and we noticed that as people, and and they were the new thing, and they were the the big company of selling snowmobiles was Skidoo at that time, and people would come in, and we were selling an off-brand, not Skidoo, and people would say, I'm looking for some type of machine that I can go Skidooing. Okay, they meant snowmobiling, but because that one product was the most popular and the first product on the market, they took the term and said all snowmobiling was called skidooing. They do the same thing with copy machines. The, brand is, the popular brand was Xerox. And then all of a sudden the brand became let's go and we're going to Xerox this, we're going to Xerox that. You may have a totally different brand. But, the, but the, they use the terms interchangeably. It happens in theology. Church is used by all kinds of different groups, yes? But they don't all mean the same thing, nor do they all mean what the Bible says. It happens with baptism, okay? Not everybody who uses the word baptism uses it the same way the Scripture just does. Would you agree with that? Okay, there's other terms that show up. Disciples. Other people may have different, uh, different understanding of what disciples than what the New Testament teaches. Yes, you'd agree with that as well. That the term is used, the same thing happens with the filling of the Spirit. In fact, the filling of the Spirit sometimes gets associated with another ministry of the Holy Spirit called the baptism of the Spirit. But there are two distinct different ministries. Let me show you why we say that uh, from a theological point of view. The filling of the Spirit is not the baptism because the baptism of the Spirit, just keep this in mind, it wasn't an Old Testament practice. They never talk about the baptism of the Spirit in the Old Testament. The closest the first time it's brought up is by which person? He's in, the, he's in the Gospels. They're under the Old Testament practice yet, but he shows up in the Gospels, and he's the first one to bring up the term the baptism of the Spirit. John the Baptist. John the Baptist does it where he says, He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me upon whom you will see the Spirit descending, he will baptize with the Spirit. Who's he referring to? Who's the one that's going to do the baptism of the Spirit? Jesus is going to make it happen. And so John first mentions that. Then Jesus expands upon that and Jesus later on in his ministry before he ascends into heaven he says you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He has just 40 days earlier he has told them it is necessary for me to leave because if I don't leave the Spirit won't come but, and when I leave I'm going to send you another comforter. He's giving all kinds of ideas of what that ministry will become. But then he says, the last day he's with him, he says, you're going to be baptized. And he refers to that coming of the Spirit as baptism of the Spirit. And so we go a little bit further, and he says even in that same conversation, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That coming upon you is the baptism. He's equated the two together. In that same conversation of Acts chapter 1, recorded in verses 5, 6, 7, 8. And so the baptism of the Spirit was the first time the Spirit was going to come upon them as a group. And we know that it happened. We studied all this because when Pentecost happened here a few days later, all of a sudden there's something supernatural happening in the room. They hear the mighty rushing wind. They all of a sudden there's these tongues of fire above them. Something, they know something different is happening. Something unusual, something exceptional. And then they're able to speak with the tongues. That they've never studied before. So it's obvious that, that this is happening. But if you go back to Acts chapter 2 and you read, it doesn't say they were baptized with the Spirit. At that moment, they don't use, the writer didn't use that term, even though Jesus said this is what it's going to be. The writer says they were filled with the Spirit. So he uses the terms interchangeably, like Xerox and copy machine, like, you know, like so doing a snowmobiling. At that moment, he used them interchangeably to describe the same event or the the ministry of the Holy Spirit happening in that regard. And so Peter then the people are gathering together and they're watching these guys speak and Peter says I'm going to explain what is happening when they said are these guys drunk? Peter says it's too early in the morning he says this is that which was spoken of by Joel. And remember how he made that comment he says Joel said I will pour out my spirit. This is the working of the spirit is his whole point. He isn't saying this is the last days. He was saying this is the working of the Spirit, similar to what he'll do in the last days. And then he qualified it at the end of that sermon where he says Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, exalted, having received of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit that he talked about in Acts chapter 1. He says this is the work of Jesus sending forth the Spirit. That Jesus earlier in chapter 1 had said this will be the baptism of the Spirit, this will be the coming of the Spirit. And that's all in in, the book of, or in that first couple chapters of the book of Acts. That's Pentecost. That we understand that that was the baptism of the Spirit. That at the same time there was the filling of the Spirit for some of those believers. So the apostles knew this was the beginning of the predicted ministry called the baptism of the Spirit. The first time that it happened. And at that time that it happened they were not only baptized but Acts chapter 2 verse 4. They were filled with the Spirit. Does that always happen that the baptism and the filling of the Spirit take place at the same moment? You're not sure. Okay. It did in that chapter that it happened. Okay. But in the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see that it, they don't always happen at the same time. In fact, as we get to the epistles and it explains, we're going to find out that though they happened initially at that, that Pentecost, the, at the same moment, at the same time, that's not the way it normally happens as time went by. That was a transition. That was the beginning of the ministry. But all of a sudden, we're going to find out that as we look at other ch- other verses, that all of a sudden, the baptism and the filling could happen simultaneously, but it doesn't always happen. And so, let's explore that. The baptism of the Spirit is for all believers. It happens throughout. We, we know this. It's clearly stated. For about one Spirit, he says to the Corinthians, we are all baptized, okay, into Christ. Every believer When they get born again, they get baptized into the Spirit. That's not the same as the filling. Because this happens to all believers. In fact, we read in Romans 5, if you don't have the Holy Ghost, something's wrong. He says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, which is by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And this baptism is only for believers. We know that that's true because you're not in the flesh but in the spirit. If so be it, that the spirit dwells within you. Now if any man doesn't have the spirit, he's not born again. He's not saved. He's not one of us. And so what happens is when the baptism takes place, there's the indwelling, the incoming, the, the spirit of God moves within our bodies and spirit. And we know that because Jesus predicted this. Jesus said in this verse in that last supper, I will pray the Father, he will give you another Comforter that he made may abide with you forever for he dwells with you with you and shall be in you once this new ministry starts, this baptism that I'm predicting that will happen in the book of Acts. He's going to start being in you. By the way, there's something else here that Jesus mentioned that I didn't highlight. What is difference now from the Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit to the New Testament ministry of the baptism of the Spirit? What is different? Not only is he in us, but what else shows up here in this verse? The comforter, he still had that ministry, standing beside and helping. There's, a, there's another phrase that has to do with time. Forever. The forever part. Okay, the forever is the Spirit of God is going to be with you. He's going to dwell within you. And how long will he dwell within you as a believer? Forever. Okay? So you, you know, if you lose the Spirit, you lose your salvation. Not possible. Okay, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, so be that the Spirit dwells within you. You're, the proof of you being saved is the Spirit dwells within you. And so the point that he's making in this text is the Holy Spirit's going to be in you, and he's going to stay within you. And as he's written already, we saw when he's talking about that idea of indwelling, he writes the Corinthians, says, Knowing not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is where? He is in you, which you have of God. You are not your own. Let me ask you a question. The church that he's writing to, spiritual? The Corinthians? No. What does he call them? You are carnal. You are fleshly. And yet he's saying you have the Holy Ghost within you. Why? You're born again, but you're not acting like it but the Spirit of God is living within you. He even repeats that later or earlier in the chapters. He says that, Know ye not that you're the temple and the Spirit dwells within you? And so every believer, even a carnal believer, has the indwelling Spirit of God. Okay, so we've pointed that out. We've mentioned these comments. Let's go a little bit further, okay? That um, these believers weren't losing their salvation because the Holy Spirit's dwelling within them, but that doesn't mean they were filled with the Spirit. That's different. The, but the baptism of the Spirit is, in, is resulting in you being spiritually united to Jesus. We read about that in Galatians for he says you are all the children of God by faith. We understand that. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. You have a, you have a new spiritual relationship to Christ that is unexplainable. But that happened at the baptism, that you were united to Christ in that regard. In fact, he says, knowing not that we were baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection, so shall we also rise to newness of life. He's talking about that idea of we have a unity with Jesus. And not only is there a unity with Jesus because of that work of the Spirit, what other unity do we have? With each other, with one another. He talks about that. He says, for as the body is one has many members, all the members of one body being many are one. There's a there's this, that that unique that that experience that you walk up and, and meet somebody and say, Hey, there's a camaraderie here in the spirit. I don't know you but we have a camaraderie in the spirit. How did that happen? It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether it be Jews or Gentiles. And so this baptism of the spirit, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, unites us with Christ, unites us with one another, and it happens at the moment that we get saved. Where he says, received ye not the spirit by works, are you so foolish you began in the spirit, are you then going to be made perfect by the spirit? We began when we got born again. Is that's when all of a sudden we have this ministry of baptism that none of us probably recognized when the day we got saved we didn't know it was happening but all of a sudden there was the baptism of the Spirit, and so it's automatic for everyone now in this day and age. Now in the Book of Acts it wasn't automatic right away. There was we'll see in the next few weeks the baptism was there, but to make sure everybody understood that it wasn't limited to the Jews. There's going to be a couple cases where the Gentiles, when they get saved, they don't get the baptism of the Spirit until the Jews can verify that. And then it can be preached, we are all one Spirit. And so that transitional book, he makes it a little bit slower. But today, today we're all baptized. Remember the illustration I used about that when we were talking about this? We, when we built this building, there was nobody around about us. And so we had to put out some money at first to help the city to get the sewer lines all put in here. Up the street here, and even the water lines out front here. And so we ended up helping to get that project. But everybody who moved in along this area, um, yeah, facing the right street, this, the other houses built along here, the houses here, were they able to tie into it? Yeah. Yeah. But initially, we, by, by picture, we were at the Pentecost moment, you know, in putting in that line. But then others will come in, now it's there, it's available. And so, in that sense, the book of Acts, it just makes this whole new ministry of the Spirit that happens once in our lives. Um, I wanted to just highlight this because I think it's important for us to remember. Getting the Spirit, getting salvation is a gift. We don't deserve it. It's only by the grace of God. He talks about that we are given or gifted the Holy Spirit. He talks about it in Romans that the Holy Spirit is shed abroad in our hearts. That was given to us. None of us deserve the Spirit of God living within us. None of us are that good that God says, oh I just got to find a place on earth where I can put my spirit. Oh there's somebody in Lebanon who is so good. Now this was a gift given by grace. That the Spirit dwells within us. And thank God that God is gracious to let him dwell in me. I don't know about you but It's a real gift of grace for God to have the Spirit in me. I definitely don't deserve it. And so we read about that. Now here's the difference from the filling. The Spirit of of the, the, the baptism was for all believers, automatic, but the filling of the Spirit is done repeatedly, where the baptism is one time when you get saved as we already pointed out. The, spirit of the, the filling of the Spirit has said, you get, keep on being filled with the Spirit. It, it is, it's not a permanent ministry, but the indwelling of the Spirit is permanent. It's going to be, Jesus said, forever. He's going to be in you. But you aren't forever filled with the Spirit. So we need to ex- understand that filling a little bit more. The filling of the saints is something that was commanded, but the baptism, you aren't commanded to be baptized. It's a past event that happened when you got saved. But going forward, you're supposed to be filled with the Spirit, as Ephesians says. As well, it's not determined, but the filling is determined by spiritual character and responses to God. In the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. In the Old Testament, they could be filled. And so that brings us to number three in your notes, just as we work our way through this. There are many benefits for you to be filled with the Spirit. We gave you 20 of them last week. Listen to that message. Number four. It doesn't always result in speaking in tongues. The reason I wanted to pause on this one and to to stress it is because when I went online again last week and this week and just said filling of the Spirit, every one of the first 20 different articles that appeared said... You will speak in tongues if you get filled with the Spirit. You will speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. So let's do a study in the book of Acts. Let's do this. Let's determine, did the filling of the Spirit, or the baptism even put the two, did speaking in tongues ever happen when people received the Holy Spirit? Yes, it did. It did happen in the book of Acts. Okay, when did it happen? Acts chapter 2. Where it says they were baptized and they were filled with the Spirit, that two happened simultaneously. They began to speak in tongues. We read in Acts chapter 10 on the Gentiles. This is going to Cornelius's house. The first time that Peter's going to see the Gentiles get the uh, Gentiles um, respond to the gospel, and God says, Peter, I want you to see this that these people really believe you're going to visually see and witness the Spirit of God is going to come upon them and so you're going to be the one to go out and start preaching that Jews and Gentiles, they all have the Spirit. So it happens in Acts 10 the Gentiles was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost and Peter heard them speak with tongues. We read about one other time in Acts chapter 19 that they said the Holy Spirit came upon those believers and they spake with tongues. Those are the three times that it happened that there was some work of the Holy Spirit in tongue speaking. Okay, now going a little bit further, okay, did it always happen in the book of Acts that where the Spirit worked or filled people, they spoke in tongues? No. There are more passages that say Peter was filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter four, and he speaks to the Sanhedrin, not in tongues. There's no tongues mentioned in this filling of the Spirit. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, where we've been the last two Sundays. They were filled with the Spirit and uh, they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Was there any mention of tongue speaking when the congregation was filled with the Spirit? No. Not in that case. Then we go to Acts chapter 6 and 7 where Stephen is speaking. He is being stoned and he's giving his testimony, quoting a lot of the Old Testament, giving the story. He's being filled with the Spirit or full of the Spirit. Does Stephen speak in tongues to those who are opposing him? No. There's no tongues. Then we go to Acts chapter 9 where where Paul is met by Ananias and Ananias says, Paul I'm going to lay my hands upon you. Your sight's going to be restored, and you're going to be filled with the Spirit. Did Paul speak in tongues then? No, there's no tongues. Acts chapter 13, he is out on his first missionary journey, Saul, called Paul, called Saul, and Barnabas. And they're going, and they come to, I think it's the city of Elimus, anyway, or the sorcerer Elimus. They meet up with him. And Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes upon him. There's no mention of tongues. But he's full of the Holy Spirit and he discerns and he warns the sorcerer and he says you're going to be damned for what you're trying to do. Acts chapter 13 the disciples are filled with joy in the Holy Spirit at this one port city that they stop at. Again there's no tongue speaking. So to say that every time somebody is filled with the Spirit they speak in tongues. That's not true. That's a misrepresentation of scripture. Did it happen at times? Yes, there were occasions. Was it always the case? No. No. So we make that statement, you don't always speak in tongues when you're filled with the Spirit. And we'll develop that a little bit more when we talk about tongues. It doesn't result, and this one to me is really scary. It used to be preached a lot, that if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to all of a sudden come to a point where you're sinless or almost perfect. Well, i got to tell you, if that's the case, I am far from being filled with the Spirit because I don't know about you, I still struggle, okay? I drive through Lebanon, get stopped by a train, I struggle at those moments, okay? I stand at the store and wait in a long line at the store, I struggle at those moments. I'm sure you've got moments where you are struggling, okay? And yet, can you be filled with the Spirit? The answer is yes, but let me point out just one story. Did we, do we know that Peter was filled with the Spirit, Yes it happened in Acts 2 at Pentecost. He was filled again in Acts chapter 4 when he's speaking before the Sanhedrin. He is filled when again in verse 31 when he goes back to the believers and they pray and they were all filled with the Spirit. So three occasions at least in the book of Acts that Peter specifically is identified as being filled with the Spirit. And yet was Peter perfect after that? No. If you go all the way to the book of Acts, okay, uh, I'm sorry, the book of Galatians, excuse me, you're going to find out that during, later on in the missionary's journeys, uh, Paul comes into a town and he is really, really upset with Peter. Do you remember this situation? Okay. Peter has is in this church preaching and Paul is coming to visit as well and they're having a meal. Do you remember what Peter did? Yeah, he got up from the Gentiles and went over to sit with the Jews, not because he was choosing to visit somebody else in the midst of the meal, but because all of a sudden some Jews walked in the door who were from Jerusalem, he felt, I shouldn't be talking to the Gentiles. And he reverted back to his Jewish prejudice. Do you remember the setting? Yes? No? Makes sense? And it says in this text, whoops, I want to stay there. It says in the text, if you read it, that when Paul saw this happening, he was so upset because other believers who were Jews followed suit. And they were affected because Peter got up and moved. They were, that they, they were affected and did the same thing. And Paul was so upset with them, it says, I withstood him face to face. And he confronted him. And Peter's rebuked. And by the way, did Peter ever get a direct message from God that he should, he should be open to Gentiles? He did. Acts chapter 10, remember the sheet vision? What I have called holy, don't you call unholy. And so Peter fell back into that prejudice, even though he had been filled with the Spirit at least three times. So for anybody to claim, if I get filled with the Spirit, I will be sinlessly perfect. Again, it doesn't agree with Scripture. It may sound like good preaching and it may be motivational and it may draw a bigger crowd but it is not biblical. Make sense? Okay, let's do this. What do I do? This is the big question. What do I do to be filled with the Spirit? Okay, how does it work? Will I get zapped? Will something you know, mystical, will my hair stand, uh, my one hair, stand on edge when I get filled with the Spirit? What is going to happen? Okay. Paul starts off in explaining the filling of the Spirit with a negative. It's in, and, and we don't have much information, but we have enough. Verse 18, he says, don't do what? Chapter 5 of Ephesians, the verse on the filling of the Spirit. Don't do what? Don't be filled with wine wherein is excess. It's interesting that he would use this analogy. Why would he use the analogy of being drunk with wine, being filled with wine, to, to work with the idea of being filled with the Spirit? Why would he make a contradictory example of this? I uh, didn't you catch the first part. well they did that that would take us back to Acts chapter 2 exactly that they were accused of being drunk when they were filled with the spirit but why I'm sorry somebody over here the effect of alcohol what do you mean by that Mike okay can, can alcohol affect people's behavior can it affect their speech their driving their judgment oh yeah oh yeah so, so is that what he's getting at? I think yes, and also something else. Okay, in the same way that alcohol takes over a person's speech, boldness, abilities to think, and in the same way that people look to alcohol, okay, I'm going to get bolder, so I'm going to take a drink, so I get bolder. I want to have peace, so I'll take a drink to be more peaceful. I'm going to, you know, I need some support system, so I'm going to take a drink. Do people look to alcohol to give them a boost or comfort? Yes, they do. Okay, Some of us who've been there, lived that. We understand that that's what happens. And he is saying, in the same way that you let alcohol control you, let the Holy Spirit control you. In the same way that you look for alcohol to give you something, instead of looking to alcohol, look to the Spirit of God. And so, all believers in this passage are told, don't turn to a drug. Don't turn to a prescription. And by the way, you have to put in here, drunkenness is bad, but was alcohol also used to help, to help people? Yeah, I mean, strong drink was given to somebody who was in great pain. No surprise to us because it was a sedative. We just have modernized the, the thing, the... the um, medicines today. But the point is, being here, is that the same way that people look to that for help, for encouragement, for support, for whatever, turn to the Spirit and let Him provide those things. I think that's there, but I think this is also there, where he says, which indicates before you can be filled with the Spirit, you need to reject that which is ungodly. That is so easy to do why is it easy to get... How, how does, for a believer, here like in this text, stop being drunk with wine. How come that would be happening to the believers? What, what about drinking would make it easy for them to get drunk? Can you do it in private and nobody see? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. And yet, is it a promoted activity amongst believers? Is it an encourage? Is drinking... Drunkenness encouraged in the book of Acts, uh, in the book of uh, Ephesians. No, in fact, go back a chapter after and put it in its context. In chapter four, what has he already said about this? He says, back in verse seventeen, "I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth do what, walk not as." Other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance because of the blindness of the heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to what kinds of things? Lasciviousness, to the work of all uncleanness with greediness. And then he goes on talks about some of the things that they have done. Is, if you look at these other texts, is some of that lasciviousness, is some of that ungodly lifestyle, does he include drunkenness in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6? Along with and beside lasciviousness. The answer is yes. Yes. And so the idea, I think from the text, is, is a two-pronged idea. Is just as people would gravitate towards alcohol for the boost, you gravitate. You gravitate to the Spirit. And when you're, when you're wanting that filling of the Spirit, you've got to reject some ungodly activity. Some, some activity that isn't promoted in Scripture. You can't live worldly and still walk in the Spirit. Okay, And so I think there's that aspect to it. But in particular, the command that we know is but be filled with the Spirit. What is he saying there? Dissect it with me. The word that he uses to be filled is this word pleresta that we get. What's that word mean? There are three common usages in the New Testament era for that word that will help us to understand the filling of the Spirit. The one common usage was it provided pressure. It was something that provided a force in these types of illustration. The pleresta was the filling of the sails of a ship that would move it along. It it was used in the idea of something in a stream like a stick that would be moved along by the pressure provided by the current. And he is saying to the believers, don't turn to those things that are, that the Gentiles typically turn to. You turn to the Spirit of God. You be filled. Allow him to pressure you, to fill your sails, to move you along, to help you to move in a right direction, to give you a current by which you are going to walk and do. So you rely on the Spirit to give you movement, to give you power, to help you to do what is right in your moving along for Christ. There was another idea, though, that it was used not only for pressure, but permeation. What I mean by that is this salt was at times talked about being pleuresta with food. Does salt, does salt, change the flavor? Can it impact how it tastes? Yes or no? Okay. It, it would be used of something that is going to permeate, is going to have influence in every area. You take a glass of water and you put it there and you drop a Alka-Seltzer in. What happens? It, it's gonna, does, it, does the Alka-Seltzer affect the entire glass of water? Yes. That's the idea here. The idea is saying, let the Holy Spirit flavor, influence every area of your life. Your speech, your entertainment, your, the way you drive, the way you work. You say, let him move me, let him absolutely permeate every part of my life. There's a third aspect, the way it was used. It would talk about being possessed by something. The word shows up in the New Testament in this regard that they were possessed, they were filled with anger. They were filled with fear. Does somebody who is overcome by fear, does that affect how they act? Does, does anger, if somebody is taken over by anger and that feeling has now all of a sudden possessed them, can it make a difference in how they treat others? Yes. And so in that same sense, he's telling us, okay, that even as somebody who's grieving, the sorrow has filled their heart, and it affects how they walk, how they talk, how they look, how they, how they act. He says, you let the Holy Spirit do this. You let the Holy Spirit possess you so it affects how you move, how you think. You rely upon him, you let him influence you, and you let him control even your feeling, feelings. Feelings by the filling of the Spirit. And so when we bring it together, we say, okay, are there other phrases? I think these other two phrases that are used of the Spirit are Equal to the filling of the spirit when he talks about being led by the spirit in Romans chapter eight when he talks about walking in the spirit it all has that same idea that what you're doing filling walking being led by the spirit you are simply doing this you are personally yielding totally to say holy spirit you 've got control of me you control what I do how I act how I respond how I drive how I how I you know interact with other people how I teach how I react to a trial how how I labor with a customer, how I worship in the service, what I do with my time in the evening, how I rely upon you to give me wisdom. And it's just this constant turning to the Spirit of God and saying, Spirit of God, direct me, guide me, help me to be the husband I ought to be. Help, help me to be the wife I need to be, to submit because I can't do it in my own power. Help me to train my kids to do right because without you, I'm going to do what, I've, what I think and what I think may not be the best. So Spirit, you guide me and help me because sometimes I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do. Any of you struggle with that? Sometimes you don't want to say the things. Sometimes you don't want to do the things you're supposed to do. Holy Spirit, you've got control. And you guide me. You directly, you permeate my life. I'm not going to have any part of my life held back from you, Spirit of God. It's basically you come into my life and I don't have a closed room to you. I'm not hiding something from you. I'm not keeping you out of a certain closet in my life. Spirit of God, I'm yielded. That's the filling of the Spirit. It's not something where the Spirit zaps you or does something. It is basically you yielding yourself to the Spirit and walking with Him. Now, with that in mind, how frequently do you need to do that? Once a week. Daily. Okay, for me, I know that I need, to re- I need to think this through more than every day. For me, I need to think about this, if I could, if I would, every minute. Because I need that help all the time. And I think you're probably thinking the same thing. This isn't something that I do just on Sunday morning and then I'm good for the week. I've got to conscientiously stop and say, I'm yours. I'm living for Jesus. Every part of my life, you're permeating. Because I'm going to go to, you know, tomorrow, uh, Lord willing, I'll have the day off and I'm going to work on my car. It's not going to work well. (laughs) Something's going to go wrong as I'm working on my car. And I'm tempted to go back to what I used to do as a teenager when I worked on cars. If something doesn't go the way I want, to turn and to throw that tool, especially when I crack my knuckles. Now, none of you would ever do that. Okay, but this is me. And so tomorrow when I walk into that garage, I'm going to have to say, Holy Spirit, it's me against the car. Fill me to keep me from doing something, even by myself, to keep my attitude right and not to express anger in an inappropriate way. So for me, it is basically a daily, hourly effort to remain surrendered. I don't know about you. It just, I can get easily triggered and frustrated and upset. But I want to be filled with the Spirit. And yet, let me conclude with this. This filling of the Spirit can be hindered. You're in Ephesians yet? Look at a text that goes right with it. Back up again to chapter 4. In chapter 4, he talks about these things. Um, let's pick up, let, let's just jump down to verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, That which is, but only that which is good to the use of edifying. I mean, minister Grace. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. How do you grieve the Spirit? Well, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be what? Be put away. Be put away next to you, near you, be put away far from you with all malice and instead replace it with what? Be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. So, so how do I hinder the spirit? How do, I, how do I unplug this filling of the spirit if you would? Well, I could go back even further into this chapter and talk about let him that stole steal no more, et cetera, et cetera, you know, let the sun go down upon your wrath. But very clearly, right within this context, he's talking about the idea of anger, speech, attitude, holding back forgiveness, holding back from, from unity with others. That grieves the spirit. I, I didn't fully understand this for many, 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 many years. For many years I understood it up here but I didn't understand it here but now as I see my family expanding and I see a generation of kids growing up and then them having kids it grieves me if I see my kids or my grandkids have conflicts it grieves my heart you know, it, it very seldom happens but it, it has happened a couple of times it's like I want them to do what? I want them to get along. And as I minister to people, especially people in their last days, some people are absolutely the, the most horrible thing in their life. The thing that's causing them the greatest heartache is the disconnect with their kids. How their kids can't get along. And it greets in the same way the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I want you to be getting along with each other. I want you to have the right attitude, right spirit. There is another phrase that shows up, and it's in Thessalonians, and it says, quench not the spirit. Quenching is to put out a flame, okay? In context, when he says this, you'll look it up and study it for yourself. In the context, he's talking about vengeful anger will put out the flame of the spirit. The flame of the spirit that would say, love one another, get along with one another an attitude that says, I just want to be miserable, like Elijah arguing the cave. He, did, he didn't want to get out of the depression. It was almost as if he wanted to be there, because then he didn't have responsibility. So it's like the idea of, I'm not going to rejoice. I'm not going to count on all joy. I'm just going to be a complainer. It quenches the spirit. That idea of no prayer that he talks about in that same chapter, it quenches the spirit. The quenching of the Spirit is when you despise prophecy. What is despising prophecy? That doesn't apply to me. What they said, that's not for me. I know so-and-so needs it. Or the Spirit of God is definitely convicting, but I'm not going to listen. I'm just just not going to do it. Those are the things that he says they hurt the Spirit. And then it comes down to the testimony of how are you living before the world the Spirit wants us to maintain a testimony where we avoid all appearance of evil. and So we look at it and say, okay, I've got to be sensitive to this. If I want to be filled, I've got to make sure that I am not saying to the Spirit, I'm not listening to you, despising prophecy. I, I, I don't want to give in to that angry spirit. I don't want to give in to that complaining spirit about how dumb my car is and God, why'd you give me this car? Okay, that, that's wrong. I don't want to get involved in something that would bring shame to the Spirit of God and to his Christ that he exalts. You know, years ago, this is how people got around. Yay? Aren't you glad we aren't doing this anymore? Okay? And so then all of a sudden society evolved to a point that, great, we have cars. And then that just grew and grew. And yet, over the years, you're going to find cases where people with cars still resorted to the horse. And I look at this and I go, why did they do that? Maybe they needed more horsepower. Maybe they ran out of gasoline. Maybe they were just, they didn't know how the car worked. I don't know. But I look at that and go, you can't be serious. People should have known better. And then I see a most recent picture of somebody with a modern day car and they're relying on the horse to pull. Why would you have bought the car? And yet there are Christians who are living this way. Christ has given them new life and they're relying upon old ways and not the power that Christ has invested in them with his spirit. And they're not moving very fast. They're not getting where they should. They may be comfortable, but it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense for you to be a born-again Christian and not be filled with the Spirit. Father, I pray, help us to not only know these truths and understand them biblically, but help us to live them practically. Tomorrow, I joke about my car, but it's going to be so true tomorrow. For these folk going to work, going to school, dealing with different traffic and different people, help us. Help us throughout this week to be yielded to your spirit, to respond the right way when little things, big things happen. Help us just to be yielded, to forgive, to rejoice, to witness, to hold back words in our house that we ought not to say and grieve the spirit. Help us. Help us to work at graciousness and godliness. Help us to be constantly reminded, I need to be yielded. I need to be yielded. I need to be yielded, and then do what the Spirit leads us to do. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.